this morning. Also, as we're rising, just let's remember Jack, uh, one of our deacons. He's on in the DR. He left yesterday. They arrived safe and sound yesterday. He'll be back with us next Sunday. Uh, but let's continue to remember him and the team there in the Dominican Republic. Let's read God's word, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 7. Uh, this is the reading of God's word. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ. As a plan for fullness, as for the plan of the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, we may be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. As you know, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we're journeying our way through the book of Ephesians, and the book of Ephesians is God's uh, primary letter that He gave us to know what the Church of Jesus Christ is and how we are. To operate, And so we're going to make our way through. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia simply means the called out ones. That God has called out a people to himself. The same way that we see that in the Old Testament. That God set aside a people to bring himself glory and honor. And we are God's chosen people, the church, the called out ones. And so he, the, the Apostle Paul begins this book and what we looked at last week and the week prior to that who is Paul who wrote this book Paul was a very godly man that was called out on the road to Damascus to become the greatest missionary that this world has ever seen in my opinion will ever see he planted many many churches we're here today primarily because of the work of Paul Paul primary primary responsibility was take the word of God to Gentiles, that's you and me, we are Gentiles. And before that, the, the primary work of God was to take the work of God to God's chosen people, the Jews. But Paul was sent by God for us. If you're not Jewish here this morning, you are a Gentile. You and I are Gentiles. So we're here because of the work of the Apostle Paul. And then last week we looked at where does it all begin with? It all begins with God, Amen. And so that's what we looked at last week. We looked at what God did and when God did it. God, at the beginning of time, chose us, the people of God, to be his church, right? And, he, and then what did he do? He then said, I'm going to give you all the spiritual blessings, all the things that you need to live a life of godliness in the context of the church. And why did God do it? How did he do it? He did it through adoption. You and I are now sons and daughters of the Most High God. We ought to just stop and pause there. Think about that for a moment. If you were a, if you were a believer this morning, you are a child of God. You and I are, are co-heirs with Jesus Christ to the throne of God. D- does that not make your heart jump just a little bit to think, wait, I am now... When I, I am now looked upon as a child of God, as a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. And then now he's going to tell us, how did this all get accomplished? 
So the outline's pretty much the same. I was having dinner with someone this week, and they said, uh, our pastor was in the book of Ephesians for over a year, and I thought to myself in that moment, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to think I'm going to be in it for Ephesians, because our outline's the exact same pretty much as last week, and it's going to be almost the exact same next week. Here's the beautiful part about this passage. We're going to take three weeks, but this passage is one sentence in the Greek, one long sentence. In my opinion, it's the most uh, powerful sentence in the Bible. It's the, it's the most theologically rich sentence, one. I'm not saying there's not others, but there's this one sentence is so packed with who God is, what God did, and the reason God is doing it. And so we looked at the work of God last week. This week, we're going to look at the work of Christ in this passage. And next week, we're going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit. And most people say, well, the, the Trinity is not in the Bible. No, it's not explicitly in the Bible. There's not the word Trinity, but we can see in this one verse the work of the Trinity, the work of God, the work of the Son, and next week, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this week, the outline is the same. The title of the message is, the, is what Christ has done. What Christ has done. And so the first point of the passage is, what has Christ done? It's one simple word. Let's look at the word together. In verse 7, in him. I challenge you this week to read the book of Ephesians. And in your Bible, if you're like me, mark in your Bible. Read from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6. And highlight every time you see those two words. In him or in Christ. You'll see it throughout the book. Because without those two small words, we're doomed. And so the work of God begins with God bringing us to himself and then planting us in where? Jesus Christ. That's a work we cannot do on our own. We need the holy God to take us and plant us into Christ Jesus. And now this is what happens when we're in Christ Jesus. What is the work of Christ Jesus? He says this in verse 7, in him, in who, in Christ, we have redemption. We got to ask the question, if we're in Christ and we have redemption, then what does the word redemption mean? What does it mean for us to be chosen by God, to be placed in Christ Jesus through redemption? You see, if we don't have redemption, we don't have anything. So what does the word redemption mean? There's six words in the Greek, in the New Testament, that talk about this word redemption. And I believe that this this word in this passage is the fulfillment of all the Greek words. But the first word, I won't mention, I won't say the Greek word because I'll butcher it pretty bad. But the first word that we see is this, that redemption is the legal acquittal of charges against somebody so there's this legal charge that's coming against people and in the new testament we see that over and over and over that there's this legal charge that's coming before people if you go back into their society people would go into the courtroom and there would be these legal accusations brought against people and they needed acquittal for those actions that's what we do here in our judicial system that if i am uh have a charge against me i go into a courtroom and my hope is what for what acquittal 
Like if I didn't do something and I get charged for doing something, I desperately want redemption. Do I not? Do you not? Right? And so that's the first word that you and I, there's this charge that's coming against us and we need acquittal for that charge. The second word is this. It's a legal repayment of something. So that's the other side of it. So if I go into a court of law and that I get accused of something and, I, and I, I get found out that I did that, then there's this redemption that I have to pay to the other party to pay for what I have done. That's one of the reasons we have insurance. Our insurance pays the redemption price for what we've done. If you hit a car or I hit a car in my car, I don't, it doesn't come out of my pocket. It comes out of the insurance pocket. I mean, I get that you and I pay a premium and all that, but you hear what I'm saying. So there's, there's this legal action that is then charged against me that now I have to pay this action. Following? Are we tracking? The third place is this. We saw it last week. The legal process of adoption. Adoption is Redemption. Adoption is that child cannot do anything on its own other than stay in the orphanage. And so they need someone to come redeem them and pull them out of the orphanage. We looked at that last week. That's one of God's ways. God predestined us for adoption or redemption. The fourth one is this reconciliation between two disturbing parties. That if two parties go into the court of law and they have this dispute, they need the God, a, a judge to come and bring reconciliation or redemption to the two parties. If not, they're going to continue to fight and continue to argue and continue to, so they need someone else to step in and bring redemption to the dispute. The fifth one is this. It has everything to do with the marketplace. It has everything to do with going in and we purchase something that's redeeming something. If I have a, 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 a free book or a free, you, you fill in the blank, I'm going to take a card into the store and I'm going to redeem what I desire to have. Right? You know, you, you've seen the cards. Like you take that card in and you say, this is the free whatever. You give it to the cashier. She, you redeem it. For yourself. All this starting to sound familiar? And then the last one is this. It's the idea of being redeemed or released from captivity. So that when, when the, the slave owners back in the day, when, when the slave would come to a place of redemption, they would be what? Set free. They, they would have spent their time in captivity, in slavery, and then they would be set free or they would be redeemed. And this is what happens for us. So the culmination of all these is what we see in this Greek word here. In him we have redemption. So let's go through all those together. In Christ Jesus, we got to first know that there is an accusation against you and me. Do you see that? Do you know that? There is an accusation that is on you and I because of what Adam and Eve did at the fall. It's called sin. 
And so I need to be redeemed of that sin. I need to be set free of that charge. I cannot do that. That's the beauty of those two words. In him, you have redemption. Notice it doesn't say in yourself you have redemption. Notice it doesn't say in your mom you have redemption. Notice it doesn't say in the church you have redemption. Notice it doesn't say in your Bible study you have redemption. No, the only way that you have acquittal for your sin is in him. If you're a believer this morning. Which means we need redemption. We need the cancellation of the debt that we owe. You know, the debt that we owe is our life, the Bible says. For what the wages of sin, in Romans tells us, is what? Death. So without redemption, I owe a price, and that price is my life. There's not enough good deeds to do to redeem myself. So there has to be, in the court of law or the court of God, a redeemer to set me free or to what? Pay my ransom. And so takes us to the other word. There are two disputing parties. If you're an unbeliever, the holiness of God and Satan's destruction Those two are always at war. Those two are always going to be in dispute against one another. Is it not? Is that not what you turn on the news and see? The the goodness of God versus the evil of Satan. Those two parties are always coming against you. And if you're an unbeliever, that Satan lives and dwells within you. And so you are always going to be in opposition to the holiness of God. Amen? Like, I'm always going to bend towards sin. But that's, that's my bend. That's what God's word tells us. It, it's, called, uh, it's called the sin nature in Romans. The, the, the sin nature of man will always be drawn to sin. And I will always give myself over to sin if I don't abide, as he tells us in John chapter 15, 16, and 7, if I don't abide in Christ Jesus, I will always be drawn to sin. And so I need someone to step in so that dispute stops. That's the redemption I have in Christ Jesus. I need someone to pay the price for me. I need someone to go before the judge and say, I will pay the price. You need that. If you're an unbeliever, You need that. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I pray that you would hear those words. You need a redeemer. And your only redemption can come through those two words, in him. Which takes us to the last one, which takes us to this word. I need to be what? Set free from captivity. I need that redemption. You need that redemption. And if you're in Christ Jesus today, all those things have been done to you. You have been declared righteous before a holy God, not because of your righteousness, not because of my righteousness. We'll get to how the redemption happens here in a moment. You are set free. You have been pardoned. You've been adopted. You've been reconciled to Christ Jesus. You've been purchased. You have 
redemption this morning. You see, this whole passage, this whole book hinges on that one word. The whole book hinges on these three words, in him, redemption. Because if you do not have redemption, you will never be part of the body of Christ. It is impossible. You can come to church all you want. You can come to all the activities. But if you do not set yourself and see yourself set it in Christ Jesus, you do not have the redemption that you need to be a part of the body of Christ. And So how does that happen? That's the work of Christ. The work of Christ that he stood before a holy God and has declared us righteous. That's the work of Christ. Now how did redemption happen for us? We see this in three words. In verse 7 through 9. The first one is this. It says this. In him you have redemption. Circle these three words in your Bible. Through his blood. You see, redemption always costs somebody something. Always. No, no matter where you're at, and no matter if it's the legal system, no matter if it's in the store, no matter where you're at. You see, if I go redeem that free card, it costs the store something. It's not free to them. It's free to me, but it costs the store something. And yet, my redemption to become a believer in Christ Jesus had to cost somebody something. And what was the cost that had to be paid? The blood of Christ Jesus. The only way, hear me when I say this, the only way that you have redemption is through his blood. It cost him everything. Redemption is the highest price that Christ paid for us, his very life. Think about that for a moment. That when you and I stood in the courtroom, I've said this millions of times here, when we stood in the courtroom, the accusation came against us. You are wicked, you are unrighteous, you are a heathen, you are apart from me, like all those accusations. And the only thing I can say in those accusations is, that is true. That's my only defense. And yet, my defense attorney steps in the way. And he says, oh, no, 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 judge, that's not true of him. He doesn't defend us in any way. He, he doesn't say those accusations aren't true. He doesn't say that you've got it off, judge. He says, no, you, you're right, judge. All that you just listed is true about them. That sin nature, it's true about them. Everything they've done in their sin nature, true about them. But then the defense attorney says, but I want to pay a price. I'll take the penalty for that accusation. You see, the accusation leads to death. We just talked about that. And the defense attorney, Jesus Christ himself, says, I'll take it. And the price will always be blood. It's been that way from the very start of creation. We see that the very first time that sin enters the picture. Blood has to atone sin. Life has to atone life. So Christ Jesus in the courtroom stands in front of us and says, place it all on me. 
You see, the redemption of your life, the redemption of my life, cost Christ Jesus everything. That's the beauty of the cross. That he stepped in the way and became the sacrificial lamb that I could not offer to a holy God. And the beautiful part is that God accepted the sacrifice. Oh, man. This passage ought to stir our affections for the Lord Jesus and for God the Father and give us grace and peace with the Holy Spirit. This apart from the work of God is impossible. Redemption without God is impossible, church. We ought to celebrate with all of our heart if you are a believer that you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ this morning. You ought to leave this church and click your heels all the way home and all the way to lunch. And you ought to wear a smile because of what Christ Jesus has done for you and what he's done for me. He gave his whole life for us. And giving his life, giving his blood, what does his blood do? You see, redemption plus the blood equals the next word. Forgiveness or acquittal. Oh, man, that is a beautiful word. When you and I stood in the courtroom with Christ Jesus and before a holy God, the the document says they're accused. The document says they're guilty. The document is all against us. But Christ's blood covers all of that. And we no longer have a guilty sentence. We don't have a record. You've been acquitted. You don't carry a record, church. Like the record that Satan holds in front of you is blank, and yet we see it with all these lists on it. But the reality of it through Christ Jesus, through the redemption of his blood, he holds a blank slate in front of you. And yet, how can we continue to read the paper with all the accusations? Because that's where Satan wants us to be, is always to be standing accused of being guilty. And yet Christ Jesus' blood has acquitted us all. He has forgiven you. And you are forgiven today. No matter what you have done, if you've placed your life and faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You are set free. You will not enter into God's throne room and he pull out that list. All he'll see is the blood of Christ covering you. That's what gives us access to the throne of God. And yet, how did he do that? How did he take away our sin? He says this. He's forgiven us according to the purpose of his will, according to the riches of grace. Listen to those words. He's forgiven you according to his grace. He says it in this way in a few moments. He lavished you with grace. I think we can read this text and we can think, yeah, 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 yeah. Like this idea that God lavishes his grace on us. The grace of God is, is the, the easiest way to say it, is an unfavorable uh, um, lavishing of God's riches on you. We don't deserve it. 
What do we deserve? Death. But his grace covers us. He pours that over us. The the word lavish means this. Out of his abundance. You see, it'd be like one of us. The analogy is this. When the offering plate comes, we throw in a dollar. You see, throwing a dollar for the majority of us in this congregation, it doesn't really cost us anything. It's a, we won't really feel that, will we? If I put a dollar in the plate, I, I'll feel good that I did something, but at the end of the day, I'll forget. It won't, it won't hurt my bank account. And some of you can put $100, and some of you can put $1,000 in the bank account. You really won't feel it. It, it, it doesn't, it's not out of uh, the overflow. And yeah, I think we can come to this passage and we can say, yeah, yeah, God, God lavished his grace on us. It didn't really cost him much. But I beg you to know when he lavished his grace on us, it cost him a whole lot. It cost him his son. So, so it wasn't this thing that he had up on a shelf that he was like, oh, that's my penny drawer. I'll just dump some grace on them. No, when he looked in the landscape of heaven, he said, what, it's gonna, what is it going to cost me? Oh, the thing that's really going to cost me is sitting right beside me, my son. And I'll lavish him. I'll give all of him to those wicked people. And he lavished Christ Jesus on us. That is his grace. We do not deserve the redemption of Christ Jesus, do we? And yet he lavished his grace on us through his son, Jesus Christ, according to his riches. Oh, man, those three words. He poured it all out for us. He emptied the bank account, if you will, for us. He didn't hold anything back. And he doesn't hold anything back from us. So we get to the last part of the text. And if I, as I studied and as you hear this message and you go back, I, I got to ask myself, what did he do this for? Why did he do this? Why, why would Christ Jesus come and live a life of perfection and give his blood for me to redeem me. What would he do that for? Like if I'm looking at myself, or I'm looking at you, I'm not going to redeem very many people with my blood. Maybe Jenny and the two kids. That's on a good day, if I'm honest. I know, I'm just saying, I'll hear about it at lunch. But on a good day, But yet when I asked the question, what did Christ do this for? Like He gave his whole life. He stood in the courtroom before a holy God and, and declared me righteous and declared me holy and declared me forgiven because of his work on the cross. What did he do it for? The, what did he do it for is in this passage. What are you been redeemed for? Why has the church been redeemed by God? He tells us in verse 10. verse 9, he says, I'm making known to us, the church, the mystery of his will. We talked about what is the mystery of his will last week? 
The mystery of his will doesn't change in this passage either. According to his purpose, he sent, which he set forth in Christ Jesus. And here's the plan. Here's the reason. As a plan for the fulfillment of time, that means when all of time comes to an end. So when the fullness of time comes, here's the plan of God through Christ Jesus. To what? Unite all things. To unite all things to him in Christ, or to Christ, to unite all things in heaven and on earth. So the reason that God allowed his son to die on a cross for my redemption, my forgiveness, lavishing me with the grace, was so at the fulfillment of time that all things would come back into order. That at the fulfillment of time, God would use what Christ did for me to set back into motion the way he set it into motion in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, perfection. But it all came under Christ Jesus. Like it all, our redemption will always point us back to the glory and the renown and the worship or our doxology to Christ Jesus. And I ask the question, is it now? Is your redemption pointing you back to the doxology or the worship of God. If you're a believer, we ought to blow these stained glass windows out of this place, out of our worship to a holy God, that he would send his only begotten son to redeem a wicked sinner so that I could one day stand in his courtroom and be declared righteous. And what he says is, at the end of time, that is going to happen. Either way, do you get that? Do I get that? Whether you want to face him today as your Lord and Savior, there will be one day that you will bow before a holy God. There will be one day that you will worship God. It might be for a moment, and then the rest of your eternity is apart from him in hell. But there will be a moment that all things have been united together for Christ Jesus Because of the redemption of our sin. And you may never come to faith in him. But there will be a moment in time. That you will bow before a holy God. In oneness with everyone else. And when that moment is over. You will spend the rest of your life in hell. If you have not placed your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But he did all this. The redemption of the world through Christ Jesus is so that one day, unity would happen. Here's my biggest fear for us as the church. My biggest fear for us, this church, Powell's Chapel, is that it will take eternity for us to get united. My prayer, since the day I became the pastor of this church, is that God would bring unity through Christ Jesus today and not wait for eternity. And I beg the question, if we're not united today as fellow believers, it's because we've forgotten the work of Jesus Christ in our life. That unites all of us. Because when we come to that place that we need a Savior and we need Christ's blood to deliver us, then we are all on the same playing field. Like, at the foot of cross, it's level. 
I don't care what you've done or what you haven't done. At the foot of the cross, sin is sin. Whether you've stolen one cookie your whole life or you are a mass murderer, at the foot of the cross, God sees us all the same and we're all guilty. And we need Christ Jesus to redeem us. And when we come to believe that Christ has redeemed us, we will be unified. Amen? But it comes out of remembering being redeemed by the Son of God. Next week we're going to look at, well, how does this play out? How, how do we get to unity? It will be the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And I beg the question for you this week, as you leave here, are you spending time with God so the Holy Spirit can do more transformation or what the Bible calls sanctification in your life. You see, the only way we'll ever be unified is going to be through sanctification on this planet. There will be a moment in heaven that all things are united for the glory of God. In a moment. Now, I'm not setting up universalism. Like, oh, well, God's going to save everyone at the end times. That's not what I'm saying. But there will be a moment. God's word says that every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is unity. And when that moment's over is when I'll spend, because I'm a believer, the rest of my days worshiping God. But if I did not know Christ Jesus, after that moment, after I confess with my heart, when I confess with my tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, I will be apart from God and apart from people for all of eternity. But there will be one moment that there is unity. Because of the redemption of Christ Jesus. And my prayer for this church, my prayer, and my plea is that we would be unified today. And the only way to be unified today is to be reminding ourselves of the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in our life. Let us pray. Jesus, I'm grateful for your redemption. That you did set me free. You declare me righteous, you declare me holy, you declare me blameless before a righteous and holy God. And yet, God, i got to be reminded that the only way that I'm redeemed is because of your son's blood, his life. There was no other way to redeem me. You did poured out your grace. You lavished me with your grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you've done this, Lord Jesus, that I would be united with you for all of eternity. In you, all things, in heaven and earth, We'll be united with you. And I'm grateful, God, for your work that allows me to be united with you forever. Yet, God, I pray for those who do not know you, have not trusted you, have not experienced that lavish grace that you poured out for them. I pray that today would be the day. God, it would start that they would recognize that they are sinners apart from you. And in that recognition, Lord Jesus, that they need a redeemer. 
that through the work of your Holy Spirit, even in this moment, that you call them to yourself. And they'd see that they are sinners apart from you. And they'd experience your lavish grace, the forgiveness of their sins. God, I pray for any believer in here that they feel like they continue to stand accused for their past. It's the beautiful work of the cross, Lord Jesus, that your cross covers it all. So if there's anyone here that, this morning that feels condemned, that feels accused, that through the work of your spirit, you'd set them free. They are free indeed. God, I pray for us as a church. You'd continue to unify us. That unity will come through the redemption of our Lord and Savior and the remembrance of what he's done for us. Go before us. Allow us to carry this message of redemption to a lost world. Let us be the hope to the hopeless. Pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?